Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, and you're listening to the TalkHouse Film Podcast. I'm a showman, a carny guy, says Nicholas Vinding Reffin on today's podcast, and he's certainly not wrong. Since Reffin came on the scene 20 years ago with his gritty debut, Pusher, he has been commanding people's attention. And since he went bankrupt in the mid-2000s and subsequently began to give audiences his true vision, without filter, without apology, he's hit a whole other level in films such as Bronson, Drive, and Only God Forgives. And he's not only a showman because he makes visually exciting, adrenaline-fueled movies that simmer with an undercurrent of violence, it's also that when he talks, he's effortlessly entertaining, somehow managing to be brash and thoughtful at the same time. The day before the release of his dark, stylish new movie, The Neon Demon, an LA-set horror movie about beauty starring Elle Fanning, Reffin sat down with filmmaker and regular TalkHouse contributor Aaron stewart Ann at Samsung 837 in New York City, a place that, like The Neon Demon, feels rather like the future. In addition to The Neon Demon and the future, Reffin talked to Anne about such diverse subjects as embracing narcissism, how overcoming dyslexia taught him to turn his weaknesses into strengths, the filmmaking advice he received from Eli Hazan, the near-spiritual experiences he had communing with master auteurs Alejandro Jodorowsky and Dario Argento, his time as a club kid in New York City in the 1980s, his surprising home-viewing habits, and much more. Enjoy the show. Do you mind if I tell a story about when we met? Absolutely. Uh, so, like, you got to understand, if you're just listening to this, Nick is a very, like, he dresses exceptionally well. Like, I, I'm, and I'm totally sincere about this. He's very sharp-looking and super cool. Uh, and I came to, you were at a video store in Brooklyn talking about a movie you loved. And I came on my lunch break from working in a bike shop. And I didn't get to see everything you were talking about. But we have a mutual friend, Beth Mickle, mm-hmm. who's designed uh, several movies for you. And um, we talked for a while. And I told you how I was co-writing this movie for Panos Cosmatos. Uh, and we got on the subject of his dad. Mm-hmm. And... His dad is George Cosmatos, and I, I loved it. Like, you instantly went into, like, you named every single movie he had ever directed. And when you got to Of Unknown Origin, you said it like, Of Unknown Origin. And I know that was like a favorite movie of George That's a Cosmatos. great film. And also, what was like, The Cassandra Crossing. Yeah, yeah. I actually have the vinyl soundtrack of the Cassandra Crossing in my collection somewhere. But that's when I was like, Nick is like a giant movie nerd. Like, (laughs) like you reminded me of the friends I worked with in a video store in my teens. Like, you know, I was like, wow, he's into really, really like... Mm. Well, also, I mean, Cosmodos directed Rambo. Yeah. I know, which is a fantastic action movie, you know. And and I think his son, who is a friend of mine, and Mm. we're trying to make a movie together, I think he's an exceptional talent, too. Oh, absolutely. Um, I just recently saw that. Oh, you saw it? And also your soundtrack came out for that movie, um, Beyond the Black Rainbow. Yeah, it's beautiful. So anyway, that's Nick is, even though he's really cool, he is an amazing movie nerd if you ever get to meet him. (laughs) He knows his movies really well. and and here we are. We're going to start talking about the Neon Demon. I hope. I think your movies have this like really exquisite like foreplay. Right. Okay. So I don't know if you want like I, I don't know when I'm going to tell you what I thought of the movie, but I'm curious like. Why don't we start with you? You you really want to start with absolutely. Me? It's it's like mm, it's so much to to start with. Uh, I fucking loved it. I saw it two nights ago at a screening for the LBGTQ community mm-hmm. hosted by a drag queen. So I didn't go to a press screening. Uh, and I usually need time with movies, but 
I mean, I was like in love with it halfway through. I was just, anyone listening to this podcast, I urge you so strongly to see this movie. I, I think it's a real movie. It's cinema. It's, it's a fever dream. What did I, what did I, I told a friend, it, it watches you. Like it has this really <laughs> intense gaze that looks back at you. Um, I, I wrote that it's like one of the most important dreams cinema has had in a long time. Yeah, I, I, I think it's going to take people a while to even digest it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ultimate praise I would offer is that there's such an enormous amount of imaginative space in the movie. I think, I, I believe, and I, I talk about this frequently when I write about movies, that watching movies can be a creative act. And that's kind of deluding in, in filmmaking to some extent. And I think you've made an amazing movie that people can find things in and mm-hmm. they're not going to find for a long time to come, I, I don't believe. They're not going to know instantly. Mm. But there's so much interesting symbolism in it. Um, I had so many thoughts while watching it. Like what? Uh, I mean, a funny thing is we just took a tour of this like Samsung studio we're in. Something that really blows me away about the film is you've made a film about now and the future, but there is no technology in it to a certain extent, other than cars and cameras. Uh, it's, it has like the feeling of Instagram and selfies and social media, uh, but somehow makes it poetic and visual. Like in my, is there something like that in there? Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I kind of stripped the film of anything that would be considered now, you know, like drugs, alcohol, Instagram, telephones, uh, technology in a way. I mean, there's basic movement you know, of a car or, or there is a camera, you know, but it's no means other than just a device to photograph something and nuts. It's not a way to engage. But one of the reasons for that was that I wanted the film to become its own Instagram because it is an artificial reality. Mm. You know, I very much believe that you and I, for example, I mean, I'm probably a little bit older than you, but just we are from the generation okay. that uh, that experienced the ev- the digital evolution. The technology was invented in our when we lived, and that uh, my children and Elle's generation, you know, because Elle is not is only like uh, 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 five years older than my eldest daughter. Hmm. And when I shot the movie, Elle was sixteen; she just turned eighteen. So, uh, but their generation are now the ones that will, you know, grow up with the digital revolution in a much more sophisticated way. It's part of their DNA. But I think the generation after that, you know, will not remember the artificial creation of the digital revolution. They will only know digital revolution as a reality, like a mutation into our conscious of it's real, mm. even though it's artificially made. Mm. And that to me is, is like very fascinating. So I wanted to film, you know, I always believed I was from the future. You know, the idea that creativity is an act of experience and that a movie like The Neon Demon is very much about the future, even though it's set in present day. but. If you had shown technology, it almost became 
delete it because tomorrow something else will be happening in terms of technology. Mm -hmm. So it was like a science fiction film and a horror film set in the future about the evolution of beauty. Mm. Yeah, it's so suggestive. It's, 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 I think when you're watching it, it doesn't hit you. There's just this weird sci-fi vibe. But there's so, many, there's so many genres and so many different tones. And it's not dualistic. It's not competitive. Like To me, it's really fascinating that they're often complementary in this film. Everything strong is also restrained. Uh, there's, it feels very violent, but there's actually not that much violence, I think. No, yeah. there's a vi I mean, I think the key is always to combine sex and violence subconsciously through mm -hmm. everything. But the whole opening of the movie introduces death and beauty within the first frame. Yeah. And then it kind of continues with that theme throughout the film. Yeah. I have to commend enormously your cinematographer, Natasha Breyer. She mm -hmm. shot The Rover, uh, and, I mean, her work in this is just awesome. I mean, it's, like, stunning. Oh, yeah. I mean, and she was very... Uh, I mean, I tried to surround myself with as many women as possible. Yeah. It all started with my wife, who very <laughs> much dominates my life <laughs> with our kids, and I happily admit that behind every great man there's a more greater woman. Behind every powerful man, there's a more powerful woman. I think that the world is essentially a woman's, you know, it's a woman's womb. And that's what's so beautiful about it. Yeah. I think if we let the world run by women, we would just be in a such more happier place. And thank God we're leading towards that. Well, I just read the other day, so you started... The very genesis of this movie, correct me if I'm wrong, you can tell it, it you were sitting with Christina Hendricks. Right. And, and what was it again? You well, it, there's kind of two genesis of the film. When um, originally it kind of all started with, I was in Los Angeles having dinner with Christina Hendricks, which is, you know, super cool in itself. <laughs> and uh, we were talking a little bit about what I was going to do next. Um, after Only God Forgives, and I said, well, I think I would like to do a horror film. And of course, she's like, oh, well, what's it going to be about? And I said, I don't know yet, but I just know there's going to be a lot of blood and high heels. <laughs> so we kind of laughed at that for a little bit, and then I was still like, well, what am I going to do? Because I knew that I wanted to make a horror film. So sometime later, I woke up one morning, and one of those mornings where you're kind of just like, I don't know, just automatically depressed. <laughs> uh, even though I have nothing to be depressed about. It just, you know, it kicks in. And, and one morning I was like, you know what? I wasn't born beautiful. You just have to accept that. <laughs> but my wife is. Hmm. And I was like, I wonder what it would be like to have been born beautiful. Hmm. And then it's like, well, that's what I can make a horror film about. So that kind of started the real genesis of what the film essentially thematically mm -hmm. was going to touch upon, that I wanted to make a horror film about beauty. Well, did you in internalize that then, or did you start talking to her about her experiences? Or, no. I mean, you're married so long. <laughs> well, yeah, I've been in the same woman 20 years. Yeah. Um, again, 
uh, only because of her is the reason I'm here. Uh, but no, I didn't really so much talk about it, but I began to fantasize a lot about mm. what it would be like. I mean, I make films purely based on what I would like to see. Mm. Uh, like fetishization, it, it's just like closing your eyes and then you imagine what the world would be like. But I can also see my, how my children are using the digital revolution, going back to what we talked before, mm. in a way that is so interesting, but they're also going into a world that is so unknown, I think. We can't really predict what's going to happen and yeah. what's going to take place. Um, but I can also see that their generation, and including L generation, narcissism you know which we grew up with as a taboo mm. for them is in a way the exact opposite it's a virtue or it's even acceptance voyeurism to voyeurism somebody. is encouraged mm. the and i thought wow that's in a way really advanced mm. of the human mind to have gone through that evolution and I guess as a filmmaker, you're kind of out at the edges of voyeurism. Oh, you're always a voyeur, <laughs> and I'm certainly very much a voyeur. I mean, I make films based on what I would like to see. You mm. can't get any more voyeuristic than that. <laughs> uh, but I think that, um, you know, once I kind of had the combination of both my wife and my children, I was like, okay, I'm not just going to make a horror film about beauty. I want to make a teenage horror film about beauty, something that speaks to the younger generation because I'm so much more interested in their world mm. and how beauty will essentially affect their lives. Yeah. Because beauty, on one hand, can be you know very shallow, very mm. quickly people dismiss it. But at the same time, it's probably one of the most complex subjects we can talk about because it doesn't take very long for people to begin arguing. Mm -hmm. So it's it's something that's in a way very sensitive. Um, or they're, they're, they'll even dismiss. There's yeah, depth to it. Yeah, because it's almost too difficult to essentially adjust because beauty essentially says a lot about you mm. as a person mm -hmm. and how you view it. Um, so I wanted to make something that was going to be for their future. Mm. Some, a topic that I felt was important to embrace and really indulge in, not to criticize, not yeah. to have an opinion about of a, that we know better, but more exploring it mm. and seeing all the wonders of it, but also all the horrors of it. And we go along on the trip with you. Yeah. You're on the experience, pal. <laughs> Was that what happens? Like you come out to talk about the movie and you're kind of figuring out how people are reacting to it when you do these press tours? Yeah. Oh, very much. I mean, I, I, I very much enjoy the, you know, seeing how people experience and, and talking with people like yourself who, you know, go from purely an instinct of what did it do to me? Mm. You know, I... I believe that good and bad has no meaning in creativity. I don't believe that you can essentially define good or bad in creativity. Mm. I think that's an artificial invention to control it. What I do believe is that creativity is 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 like the essence of it. Yeah. Is reaction. Right. And reaction means it plants a thought and a thought means engagement. Engagement means evolution. 
whether you like it or not, is to me, it's almost like, I mean, that's your Chinese dinner. I mean, <laughs> I, it's like, this is so much more interesting. And, you know, for me, at least, I believe very much in the future of technology in the sense that the ecosystem mm. of our industry, mm. of our entertainment industry, you know, when we talk film as the mass media that it has become, has really been uh, defined in a purely uh, controlled financial playing field mm. where there's so much money to be made and wonderful money. I mean, I love money and I love what they do. Yeah. But in terms of creativity, it no longer challenges the same way as the orientation of art because it's become a well-induced stock mm, mm. that just knows how to produce and consume. And the more it can consume, the more financial gain there is, the more that it will turn around. But in terms of the essence of its origin, which is creativity, began, has begun, and now is stagnating. Yeah. But what's beautiful is that every time that there is a stagnation, something new is invented. A new beginning appears. And with this, we had the digital revolution, mm. which you and I were introduced to. And now it's really starting to create a canvas, yeah. a whole new canvas, a whole new ecosystem mm. where the rules of the past ecosystem, the conventions of control, uh, elitist groups making it, distributing it, mm. who is opinions matter, who says what is good or bad, don't really apply in the same way. On mm. the contrary, it's completely different because in the digital revolution, everything is accessible. Everything is productible. Everything is up for opinions. Mm. There is an audience for everything. There's no control. And I believe that the future is not so much about what you do. It's more about what you stand for. Right. And where you really go back to the original ideas of cinema, being, being an image and music, and that it was an experience. It was, it was meant as to travel into an odyssey and i think that's what's happening now is that we are now in transition of film or cinema as we can call it because yeah. it's no longer film going back to the origin of being a true experience and i think that's wonderful it will coexist with what's going on now in hollywood but where hollywood has stagnated into this perfect stock the digital revolution has evolved into the future. Yeah. And that's why I always believe that I'm from the future because <laughs> for me, it goes back to everything I've always made. It's about an experience. Mm. I'm sort of fascinated that movies that are purely cinematic um, have become so challenging in some ways. Uh, like a, a really great anecdote I have about this, there's this collective of filmmakers in England called Shinola. Uh, and one of them decided to drop acid and go watch Attack of the Clones, the second Star Wars prequel. And he was watching the movie and like, you know, nothing was happening. Like the acid wasn't working at all. He got up and went to the bathroom halfway through the movie and realized he was like tripping, like really heavily. Came back into the theater and it nullified again. 
and he has this theory like the movie's so busy visually and everything's so sharp and in focus and all the effects are imagined for you. There was no room for psychedelics to explore in his imagination. Those imagination. Oh, right. That's interesting. I haven't seen the movie. I haven't <laughs> done Asset, so it's difficult for <laughs> me to relate to that. But um, I have another, but I, but I do like... Like I, I feel there's a great gift in movies that they can be something that you go to uh, and you supply, you know, something. To, like there's no good or bad. There's you just trying to wonder what you've experienced. Oh yeah, and I think that's what we're seeing the beginning of again. I mean, I'm very optimistic about the future. Yeah, which it's, is great to hear. Yeah. Well, because you have to both because you know being a parent you have to be optimistic, mm -hmm. but also I generally do believe that we're entering into a world of so many new possibilities. Mm. And I think that, you know, it goes back to art and war, mm. you know, the two factors that change our evolution. But where war destroys, art inspires. Mm. And as long as we continue to do that, at the same time, entertain, because in the end, I am just an entertainer. I'm a showman, I'm yeah. a carny guy, <laughs> you know, then there's something to wake up for. There's something to strive for. Well, and, the, you know, that's important. The first time I met you, you were really emphatic, almost like with this religious zeal that I genuinely appreciate. You're very sincere. Like when somebody talks to you about how am I going to get my film made, you, you have these wonderful things you talk about, about how strength is weakness, how fear is the genesis of creativity. I mean, did all this come after Fear X? Uh, what, what part in your development did you start to embrace? Like, like, I think it's really inspiring what you've been talking about. How as a filmmaker you have to dig into every limitation is going to be something that causes you to have a breakthrough, you know? Yeah, no, I, will, I mean, it, I guess it really comes from my dyslexia. Hmm. You know, um, I'm very dyslexic, which now I've, able to turn into a strength but growing up it was of course very difficult yeah you know and you know we all know how evil children can be yeah and you know if you can't function in school with the normality you know it very much becomes a consequence both socially and you know and 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 academically and so forth there are things you know you can't really do you can't really go to college you mm. can't really go because if you can't read or write you know it's how you're gonna fit into normality and I think that growing up I was very much questioning and seeking anything that was alternative because I was like well what's so goddamn great about normality mm -hmm. and I was I had some wonderful experiences in that search. I mean, I grew up in New York mm. in the '80s. I was a I came to New York in '78 from Copenhagen and lived until '87. So you know, I was very much a definition of the last glam days of New York. Mm. And you know, I very quickly alienated myself to anything that was authority, to anything that was considered school, and. Because I, I was like, if you can't, if you can't join them, well then I'm certainly not even gonna try. Yeah. And then I was very lucky to um, get financed to make my first movie when I was 24, and 
you know, it was just a God-given bless that I was able to do that. I didn't know what else I was going to do with my life. And then I spent two films after that trying to fit in, mm. to be accepted within the cultural hierarchy of quality filmmaking or acceptability, mm. you know, catering to few people's opinions that I wanted, that I wanted approval from. Mm-hmm. And it had a very turbulent time, you know, and I was never selected or really invited in. And so when I really hit rock bottom, you know, I had gone bankrupt with my company. I mm-hmm. owed my bank a million dollars. We had our first child. You know, it's like your dyslexia paranoia comes right back at you again. Right. But I just remembered back then, well, you know what? What is so fucking great about normality? And I went back to saying, from now on, I'm just going to make films based on purely what I would like to see. Because if they're not going to accept me as the greatest filmmaker of all time, then with the films I'm going to make, I'm going to be the greatest at. And so all those weaknesses hmm. that had been, that had in a way been my handicap, hmm. suddenly became my strengths. And when you look at the world like that, you start to evolve muscles in your brain that otherwise you wouldn't work with because normality doesn't need to. It, it just functions. Mm. But it, you become like a superhuman. You become like the driver. You, you start to build abilities and, and, and that's beautiful in creativity because creativity is about turning your weakness into your strength. Mm. That's the glory of it. Anyone can create. Anyone has the ability. And what I try to do is always create based, if I was an infant, with all the crudeness and all the imperfections, mm. but retaining my attitude, retaining my singularity, because that's the one thing that can never be taken away from me. Yeah. And then you create your own rules, your own world, your own set of standards that you can then deal with however you want to. Mm. But at least you're doing it your way. And it was something that you know, made sense to me now, but when I was 24 and I'd done my first film, I was uh, very fortunate to meet Eli Kassan yeah. before he passed away. And like any young person, you know, Mr. Kassan, what advice would you give a young filmmaker? And I was like waiting for the golden word. You know, now he was going to come with, the, you know, the Bible of this is what you need to do and this is how you do it and blah, blah, blah. And Call all he said person. to me yeah, was um, my, um, <clears throat> my advice to you hmm. is do it your way. And I didn't really understand it back then. But now I understand what he meant because it changes from every year. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it resonates with me. Of course, it's the one element that can never be dismissed. Yeah. So whatever opinions people have about you or the films you make, and certainly people have a lot of opinions about it, yeah. which is great marketing because you're just the eye of the storm, is... 
you can't, you can't get me down, mate. It's like Bronson when he says, you can't put me in a box. <laughs> I don't want to be controlled. I will not fit in. I will not be predicted. Yeah. Whatever you want, I'll tear it down. Fuck the establishment. Kids are going to love it. And I think that youthfulness, and I don't mean that in age, hmm. but the other that there's always a curiosity of where creativity can bring you, I want to feed into my children. Hmm. That don't ever tell, don't ever let anyone tell you can't do anything. Hmm. Hmm. Don't let anyone tell you what is right, what is wrong individualism narcissism it's beautiful fall in love with yourself because creativity is complete narcissism <laughs> it's complete self-indulgent and the more it is the more interesting it's going to become well it's interesting too because at that screen the other night it came out that like back in i guess the 90s in new york i mean you were like a club kid at these like um you were around people like Michael Alec. Oh yeah, this was in the right? '80s. Yeah, like like count- '90s was was after the metal machines and crack and AIDS had killed most everyone. Right. But yeah, no, I was very fortunate to have the last wave of the great club life of New York. And yeah, so I was like 15, hanging out at. God, we went to a lot of danceateria. Yeah, Save the Robots, which back then was an illegal club before it got legal and boring. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we went to the Mike Todd room. I remember when Nels came out, like that whole shift. I mean, I, 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 that was a wonderful uh, way into, you know, I met Andy Warhol when I was 15. And, wow. Um, <laughs> like this pursuit of counterculture, it's been like this running thread. I mean, to me, even Jodorowsky, did you just seek him out personally? Because people, people forget now that Jodorowsky, like those films were unavailable. Well, he created the counterculture. Yeah. And, and in so, a way. Like, like, it seems that you found him and sought him out and became friends with him, like, in, during a period where he was really just known for comics in Europe. Like, did you just personally hunt him down? Or? No, we were very, uh, I was very fortunate. I say we, and I said, I, this is how megalomania I am. We were very <laughs> fortunate. No, I was very fortunate to, um, to, to be invited to an event where he was. Hmm. And, um, I I had to choose some films to be screened that I liked, and he had to choose some films. And I remember I was in pre-production for Drive, two weeks before we were supposed to start shooting, and I had sent a list of films to France or in Paris where this event was taking place. And and then I got a call from Paris saying, well, Mr. Yudorowsky has also in, you know submitted his list of films that he would like to be screened. And I was like, oh boy, something about we chose the same movies or I have to do something different and whatever. Oh, and yeah. they go, no, 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 it's not that. He's only chosen your movies. <laughs> and I remember that was the first time I I was... There's been two times in my life where I've been very moved. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> the other one I will tell after, but... So I was like, oh, my God, do you think I can meet him? Yeah. And the event people said, sure. I mean, he will love, he will be happy to see you in Paris. So I went to the production of Drive and said, oh, guys, I'm going to Paris tomorrow. <laughs> I'll be back in a couple of days. Just keep the motor running. It's like a spiritual quest. That it point. was, yeah. because then I flew all the way to Paris and I had yeah. dinner with him. And we talked a lot about 
you know, uh, creativity. And I had my first tarot reading with him mm. that I have now become a standard analysis of my life. Growing up, Denmark, New York, did you have any religion? No. I, whatsoever? Yeah, it was a it's very... It's a state, is religion. Yeah. And then I moved to America, and it was under the Reagan years, so Dala was religion. <laughs> um, but so I became very good friends with uh, Jarowski. He christened me as his spiritual son. Yeah, yeah. And have now, you know, been... I just spoke to him two days ago. Mm. And um, while I was making Neon Demon, I would get a tarot reading every weekend. Wow. I am. And and that was genuinely adjusting the film? I mean, you shoot chronologically. Yeah, it was helping me sometimes to 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 remind myself that as instinctually as I make it is the right approach. Because mm-hmm. I force myself creatively in positions when I make films where everything has to be in chronologically. Yeah. I write it in chronologically order. I prep it in chronologically order. I shoot it in chronologically order. I edit it in chronologically order. And all those processes always continues to evolve. So even though I, yeah. I know why I want to get to, I don't know how I'm going to get there. But that's what's exciting because that to me is when you're alive. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm much more interested in the creative process rather than the result. The result to me is all about ego and vanity. And <laughs> I've been through that road when I was younger and it did <laughs> not end well. And to me, I'm like, I just love to be alive. Yeah. I love life and I love my children, I love my wife, and I have not known any other women, so I guess that's maybe why. <laughs> but I love the creative process. I love the act of creativity, and I force myself to approach everything as instinctually as I possibly can. But it does feel like you love your cast in this movie, primarily women, your cinematographer, mm. your co-writers. Like there, there seems to be like... You know, oh, yeah, but yeah. I mean, it was all women, and I love women. I'm yeah. not a guy guy. I don't like guys. You get, like, sausage party yeah. and sort of... I don't know what that is. Oh, I it's, love it's women. when only guys are around. Oh, right. <laughs> Sounds, like, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm completely infatuated by women, and I think, you know, the womb, I think the most beautiful image in the world is the vagina. Yeah. Have you been... Have you noticed a different response to this movie from women? As opposed to men? Uh, yeah. All the men always come up with a quote-unquote correctness, and all the women are much more radical and into it. Yeah. Which is interesting, because the film is about women hmm. in a world where men don't really belong. Yeah. It's, it's a film that mm. really focuses on women and the world of women, yeah. where men have no meaning. Yeah, the men it's are almost like, like just sort of... They're props. Yeah. And, or or studs who were well, not even studs, not, yeah, they're more like devices they're, they're to just tell animals. the story. Yeah. I used to joke me and Elle had was always the guys in Neon Demon are the girlfriends of other movies. They're just there as a plot device. <laughs> but, you know, halfway the film, the film, you know, I always said we, we're going to virtue into what's beyond feminism, mm. you know, and with Elle, it was just a perfect ride, you know, and she was the only one that I wanted for the film. So the agenda was get Elle Fanning. Yeah, yeah. And I was very fortunate that she wanted to do it. But when I met her, I said, look, uh, I'll be honest, uh, I have fantasies about being a 16-year-old girl. I would love to live that through you. Mm. She was like, okay, she's down. I was like, all right. And again, I would like to make a horror film about beauty. 
because I think it's a subject that we have to really understand. Yeah. Because it's so complex. And she said, I agree with you. Hmm. And she goes, oddly enough, my goal is to make a movie about beauty for my generation. Wow. She happens to be 16. So it was like like a true connection. Very yeah. We very quickly bonded in a, in a much more, because then what, because I had been working on this film and I was in prep, but I hadn't really cracked the DNA of it. And uh, I ended by our meeting, you know, after we agreed that we would work. Yeah. But I had to find a way to kind of round it all so I can say, well, this is what the film is about. Yeah. And I asked her, so, but tell me one thing, uh, Al Fanning, do you consider yourself beautiful? And I think she was, you know, taken back mm. and she giggled a little and I said no I'm serious do you consider yourself beautiful and she just looked at me and she said yes and that to me is when I found the movie eight weeks later we were shooting Natasha and me Elle and it's like everything else I'd worked on kind of was erased yeah and it all led back to this thing about my wife having been born beautiful. And now I was with this beautiful 16-year-old girl who basically embraced narcissism as a virtue. And I know we were on for quite an experience of horror and science fiction. So you said there was one other moment that was as moving as the time as Jodorowsky chose your movies. What, what was that? Uh, well, not to sound like a complete asshole, but... Um, <laughs> It was in Milan this year. There was a, a, a program on Sky about my film, Sky Cinema. Yeah. And uh, I was being interviewed in front of an audience. And then they had a surprise guest, and that was Dario Gento. Wow. Who came up and had to sit next to me. And then he would spend, you know, a long time of the event talking about my films. Yeah. And that was the second time I was like, <laughs> "Holy, I'm going to cry now. <laughs> but then I was like, yeah. You did tell me a few years ago it's harder for you to get out to a cinema because you have kids. Um, but what are you watching? Is there anything you've seen by young people that's really excited you? Like, Well, I loved It Follows. Yeah. I thought that was an amazing film. Um, uh, I, 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 I absolutely uh, liked it. And uh, um, I actually really liked that Michael Bay movie where we were there in uh, 13 Libya. hours? Yeah. It's I, tremendous filmmaking. I, I have a lot of admiration for Michael Bay. I think he's like one of the best directors around. And I think he's very, very, very good at what he does. Yeah. I've never met him, but I love what he does. Um, my my eldest, who's turned thirteen, has in has has uh, discovered Friends, the TV series. Yeah, yeah. So the show. So we lot we watch a lot of Friends. This is a thing that happens with directors. You have kids, and then you <laughs> watch what they're watching. They're very funny, actually. Yeah. And then um, I don't know. We watch Homeland. My wife and I. We loved uh, Christina Hendricks, so we watch anything with her in. Yeah. We're like, we're big. We're like. Christina uh, fan club presidents <laughs> and, and, and first lady. Um, but there's so much interesting out there. I think probably one of the other great things when I, when I saw Sia's video for Chandelier. Yeah. That to yeah. me was like one of the best films I've ever seen and it was only 90 seconds God, yeah. or two minutes however long it was. I was just 
pure poetry. Is that one of the reasons she, you chose her for the track for the end of Neon Demon? Well, I was very fortunate to meet her yeah. uh, about a year ago, and, and we became friendly, and, and, and I asked if she would participate in the film. and Because I think she's like... Not just one of my like favorite performing artists. I mean, my kids love her. Yeah. My wife, we like we play her music all the time at home, and I think she's a wonderful role model because she truly represents, you know, quality and virtue, and 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 singularity, and and you know, if you just if it comes from the heart, yeah. no matter what, it's beautiful. This is Nick Dawson from TalkHouse Film, and you've been listening to Aaron Stewart-Ann and Nicholas Vinding-Reffin on the TalkHouse Film Podcast. This episode was engineered and edited by TalkHouse Podcast producer Elia Einhorn. Thanks to Giant Step for coordination. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit thetalkhouse.com slash film. Subscribe to TalkHouse Film and TalkHouse Music Podcast on iTunes, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review if you can.